will end up being as fondly remembered as Shaquille O'Neal's Kazam and Meta World Peace doing the cha-cha on Dancing with the Stars. A great blurb there from Kiko Martinez of San Antonio Current talking about Space Jam, a new legacy, one of the films we're reviewing here on Cinephile. We're also going to talk about The Immigrant, a film that I finally saw, James Gray, Marion Cotillard, Joaquin Phoenix came out years ago, Dr. Zhivago. My parents are visiting. It's one of my mom's favorite movies. I said, all right. I recorded it months ago. Mom, let's watch Dr. Zhivago together. Three hours, 22-minute epic David Lean. And on that flight that I took that I told Cody last week, where I watched King of Kong and Quick Change, I also got through two hours of Malcolm X. So when I came home, I finished the rest of Malcolm X, which, of course, is one of my favorite movies of all time. Finally got to see it. So... More importantly, Cody, how are we doing? Subscribe, rate, review, Apple Podcasts. I saw a lot of positive tweets last week. Thinking, you know what? For a guy who hadn't seen any movies, Cody was still bringing the heat, particularly the Ray Romano story. That's what I do, Adnan. I'm good when I'm bad. I'm bad when I'm good. Let's do it. I'm excited about today's show, though. So we got a great guest today, Jay Glennie, who is a kindred spirit. He loves Scorsese and De Niro as much as I do. He's got a new book out called The Making of Raging Bull. So I saw a blurb on a Hollywood excerpt. I'm like, I got to go see this limited edition. I go to the local Barnes and Noble. They're like, we don't have any copies. I'm like, that's fine. Just order it. They're like, we can't. I'm like, what do you mean you can't? It says the world today. First world problems. I go, no, it's limited edition. So Jay is not only a great author, more importantly, Cody oh, yeah. found him and he found more importantly, his people. And they're like, if Adnan wants a book, here's the link. How about this? The new copy is a hundred pounds. I'm like, whatever. I'm not flinching at this. We got, we got, we got DraftKings money. But then there was previous, previously used copies, 35 pounds, jumped all over that. Shipping is 45 pounds, 35 pounds for the book, 45 pounds for shipping. That's 80 pounds, 110 bucks. We're getting it. Yeah, next I would week. not read that book. Just I'm like Jay, I, I'm just saying because of how much it costs. I'm sorry. Like I, I'm not, I don't want to offend our guest. But Jay is a great oh, so guest on the list. Um, who is our special guest this week, Cody? Last week, nobody from the Lumberjack family. Who do we have oh, unveiling this? I week? had to bring in my man Roy Bellamy. I really wanted to do this for a couple reasons. He saw Space Jam. I think he's into Malcolm X as well. But I wanted to bring him in because I, I, I don't know if Roy's a cinephobe or a cinephile guy. And he needs to, you know, there's a line in the sand. So I think we need to go there with him. Well, this is actually very helpful right out of the way. Thank you so much to Roy, by the way. Giant Florida Panthers fan. Every time I work with Bill <laughs> Lindsay on NHL Network, <laughs> I, I tell him, I go, you know, Roy's a big fan. Right away, his eyes lift. He's like, yeah. He goes, season ticket holder. He's there in every game. I'm like, wow. Like, Roy, Roy is legit. I'm like, okay. I, I knew he was a Panthers fan. He's like, no. He never misses a game. He's locked in. I'm like, great. Cinephobe. I get these tweets all the time, Roy. It says ascertain. <laughs> I, I love I, I love him meaning the whole crew. Apologies, I've not heard the joke. I'm sure it's a funny joke. What does this mean when everyone keeps tweeting me ascertain? Well, ascertain is a word that uh, Amin always uses in his mission statement about the show. They're trying to ascertain whether a movie <laughs> deserves its bad rap or if it didn't get a fair shake. Now that's there's some definite there's there's a lot of asses going on on cinephobe yeah that's right I said it I said it (laughs) well listen I don't I don't think it's a rivalry the fact that we have two movie podcasts that's great we lift each other up uh, and we're gonna dive into Space Jam two which I'll give the plot quickly and I'm gonna get Roy's take on it I understand you've seen this right Roy Space Jam that's right right Roy has a young daughter so he has to watch these kinds of things so the story is this it's a disconnect between LeBron and his son. It's not his actual son. The kid just wants to play video games. LeBron yeah. wants to play basketball, obviously. AIG supervillain Don Cheadle shows up, wants to teach LBJ a lesson. This is a far cry from the Don Cheadle who I loved in Devil in a Blue Dress. This is a slightly different performance he's giving. LBJ <laughs> is shrunk into an animated character. He has to choose his teammates or be stuck there for eternity. We then get a mildly amusing sequence in which he finds himself in The Matrix and Casablanca, although there's an eye-roll-inducing moment where you have Yosemite Sam playing the <laughs> Sam in Play It Again Sam. <laughs> But what the hell? At least LeBron's playing Bogart. I'm up for that. Eventually, you get the familiar Looney Tunes characters. I love Foghorn Leghorn. I'll say, I'll say, I'll say. 
But ultimately, Roy, I found it was a sequel that is unnecessary. I think the original is pretty average. This one is worse. It's bland. It's predictable. It's uninspired. Cody also saw the movie, because all of us now have kids. But, Roy, give me your take first. Space Jam 2, what do you got? I don't think it was as bad as people made it out to be. Yes, LeBron is a terrible (laughs) actor. And, yes, Michael Jordan is a better actor. Eh, Not that much better, though. I want to push back on that. It wasn't like MJ crushed it as an actor. He was fine. No, he didn't crush it. And that tells you how bad of an actor that LeBron is. Did you guys think that that I thought the first scene with LeBron acting was especially bad? They tried to they tried to go to the heartstrings. I thought they went too quick to like trying to make him into the serious actor. I thought his acting honestly got a little better as we went on. That first scene was like cringeworthy though. I couldn't agree more with Cody. In fact, that whole sequence where it's live action, I'm like, when does the cartoon yeah. stuff start? Like an hour 55, <laughs> I'm like, can we get to when LeBron's animated? Because I don't like this whole yeah. emotional scene. Like, this is a far cry from his chops and train wreck. But one of the issues I had with it, Roy, is, <laughs> you know, you've got all these famous characters popping in the background, right? Agent Smith and The Matrix. They've also got the mm-hmm. characters from A Clockwork oh. Orange. To be clear, that's a movie about raping and pillaging. I'm like, yeah, those guys are in the background cheering on this basketball movie. I'm like, a little That was one of my favorite parts was, like, the little nuggets. Like, obviously, that's that one they probably could have left out, to your point. But I, I liked looking <laughs> yeah. in the crowd and, like, say, oh, is that that from that movie? Like, that, I actually like that part. So- so I like it, Cody, but here's my thing. If you're going to have them, do something with them. Like the best line, <laughs> Cheadle channels Denzel on training day. It says, King Kong ain't got nothing on me. And you cut to a shot of King Kong who kind of just shrugs his shoulders. I'm like, Roy, what a waste of King Kong. This is what King Kong is in the movie for? You're going you're gonna to have him smash some things. Let's go. Well, Adnan, these are Easter eggs. Yeah. That's all they are. <laughs> right. They're just there as little trinkets. Right. And to see Pennywise there. <laughs> Pennywise from it, yeah. He was an assistant coach. <laughs> Dude, those are assistant coaches, by the way. Like, Mr. Uh, Agent Smith, that was an assistant coach. Pennywise, that was an assistant coach. Uh, the Joker. We saw the mask. We saw the that mask. I like that one. We the, mask the mask was there. Yeah. He was not an assistant coach. He was a uh, court side. But, uh, yeah, I mean, those, those Easter eggs actually made it for me. It made it a better movie for me. Like, you saw the Flintstones in there, yeah. uh, the Hanna-Barbera stuff. That, that was good. Now it's nice to see the Casablanca stuff. All, all just going through the little worlds and everything that, that actually made the movie for me. That made it enjoyable. That brought the adults into it. Did you laugh at the Michael Jordan joke? I thought it was predictable, but I didn't mind it. What did you think? I mean, you had to get it in there, right? I mean, <laughs> like they they did they brought it in there like we did this before, been there, done that, that sort of thing. Like, okay, yeah, that's paying off. Did you guys did, to it? Yeah. Cody, did you I, like I the that joke? Was fine. I mean, I yeah. could, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a big Michael B. Jordan fan, so as soon as they showed the shadow, like I knew exactly, I could tell it was his face. So I it was kind of it was kind of ruined yeah, for yeah. me before yes. the reveal. I was like, oh, that's clearly Michael B. Jordan. I thought it was still funny. You got to make that joke. Actually, my wife got angry because <laughs> I tend to predict when these things happen. Like, not seeing the movie before, I tend to predict when things happen and they come true. Like, uh, the Tokyo Drift, there was a Donkey Kong uh, joke in there in the elevator. I said that in the theater, I saw that because I was dragged to see that. In the theater, I said that. And once it was a random pull for you, I predicted something in Tokyo Drift. So, this is like kind of my thing. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's kind of my thing. It's kind of my thing for almost every movie that I watch. I don't like this guy. I don't like people that try to predict what's happening in the movie. Just don't, I don't need your prediction, okay, guy over here. Just let me watch the movie. My wife's just like Roy. We're watching, uh, We'll watch TV and same thing as Roy. She's like, Pop, look, this is going to happen. He's going to get killed. Listen, I know you're You feel good about yourself when you get it right? Like, now you just ruined it for me. Thanks. 
you guys liked it more than me. More importantly, the kids. Roy, did your daughter enjoy it? Cody, my, did your daughter enjoy it? My that three and a half year old. I actually went to the theater for this. I know it's on HBO Max, but like me and my wife have been wow. wanting to take our daughter to a movie. I was like, you know, what better time? I actually want to see this. Let's go do it. The movie didn't start till like 40 minutes in. I think they were having technical issues. That's a whole nother thing. But my daughter made it through it. That's a victory for me, Adnan. She sat there. She didn't embarrass us. I didn't have to take her out of the theater. It was a huge win. My daughter, she looked like she was watching it, but I'm not really sure what she was actually. Popcorn and slushies as well or no? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got a popcorn, a slushie. My, my wife got a water. I was actually, you've talked about prices in recent weeks. I got out three tickets, a, a large slushie, large popcorn, a candy, and a bottle of water. It was like under 60 bucks. I was actually a little... Wow. I know that doesn't. That's, that's actually kind of expensive, but for what the prices that you've been saying, Adnan, maybe it's cheaper down by me. Right, North Jersey a little more expensive yeah. than Florida, I guess. Roy, your daughter was into it. Yeah, she laid down and watched it. That's good enough for me. I feel like this movie is a little ahead of its time in that the internet is taking over everything. Because like the story of this movie was essentially like us being able to like live in the internet at some point and like transport ourselves by watching a screen. All of a sudden, we're at the game. And it's, it seemed ridiculous, but there was also part of me that's like, is this what it's going to be like someday? Because this is scary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the like whole Skynet. Com- yeah, this guy. The whole thing is like, it's all but like IP, like intellectual property. It's almost like Warner Brothers, I felt, was just showing off. Hey, look at all these characters yeah. we've done. Hey, we're just as cool as you guys, okay? We've, we've done things, Pixar. And I'm like, I don't know if there's actually a point to all this beyond just showing us the candy, but I guess the eye candy deed. To me, What's Up Doc belongs on TikTok. I don't need it as yeah. a two-hour movie. At least give to me, it was too long. Hour 55. This yeah. should be a 90-minute And, and spoiler alert, you know, LeBron bailed out by his teammates again at the end. I mean, geez. Oh, jeez. I mean, jeez. Oh, I mean, do something on your own. At the close a game for once in your life, LeBron. I mean, jeez. <laughs> His son with the assist. So, yeah. It was good to see Ernie Johnson, yeah. by the way, in the movie, at least. Uh, I also yeah. want to get into Malcolm X. I know Roy's a fan of that film as well. A towering epic on the black civil rights leader. Scorsese, by the way, was on uh, Ebert. It was, you know, obviously Cisco and Ebert back in the day. Marty was guest hosting. They did their best films in the 90s. And Marty had Malcolm X in his top 10 of the 90s. So that tells you the kind of film, the impact it had. And it's almost even more amazing now to watch fellas in the vein of, you know, Black Lives Matter, what's happened the last couple of years in this country. I remember seeing it when I was 14. Dad loved it. Brother loved it. Had a Malcolm X hat in high school. What stands out to me, Roy, when I watched it again was the open and the close incendiary mm, yeah. credit sequence out of the gate. Rodney mm. King beating, interspersed one of Malcolm's speeches, and an American flag burning, and you got Terrence Blanchard's score. That's how you start a film. I mean, Spike is just launching a grenade at the screen, and talk about immediately capturing your attention. Yeah, yeah, it literally incendiary <laughs> with the flag and everything. Now, I'm looking at the, the Academy Awards list here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were nominated uh, for two awards for... Uh, Best actor Denzel, he lost to Pacino, Sin of a Woman, and best costume design with Ruth E. Carter, who won for Black Panther recently. She lost to uh, whoever did Dracula. Which, That's right. Uh, yeah, it's a movie, yeah. Movie. Think about yeah, that, though. Uh, this is a great film. Two Oscar nominations. It's the best performance of Denzel's career, but he couldn't win because Pacino hadn't won, and Pacino should have won for The Godfather and Serpico and Dog Afternoon, mm-hmm. so he was due. But it's so crazy when you watch it again now. I mean, it's Denzel's movie. For those that don't know the story, it's beginnings of Malcolm Little, street hustler, origins of his very fair mother, his preacher father, espousing the value of blacks, moving back to Africa. He's running numbers. He's under the mentorship of a very sly and cunning Delroy Lindo, which... Now that I watched uh, his reunion with Spike last year, it was funny to see Delroy Lindo back as West Indian Archie, such a charismatic crime figure. And Spike's so obviously good. in the movie as well. 
I, just the whole sequence of them trying to get the kink out of their hair. And when Denzel looks up, he's like, I look white, don't it? I'm like, man, like this is amazing. This guy was like this, Roy. And he became a, an impassioned leader. It, it's inspiring to me because it shows how much we are capable of, all of us, if we are guided in the right direction. Absolutely. And, and guided in the right direction, you mentioned that. Uh, Spike wasn't nominated for Best Director. Obviously, Clint Eastwood, would have, he won for Unforgiven. That makes sense, mm-hmm. obviously. But not being nominated, not like, I mean, how it's in, James Ivory, Martin Brest for Sin of a Woman. Martin Brest, excellent director, yeah. uh, up until Geely, I guess. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> nice pull. Uh, Neil, Neil Jordan, the... Neil Jordan, The Crying Game, and uh, Robin Altman with The Player. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you only can have five, obviously, but yeah. But, uh, but I'm with you. I can lose James Ivory for Howard's End. Uh, I could lose Marty Brass for Cinema Woman. I mean, it's Pacino's movie. Uh, mm-hmm. Altman's obviously a great director. He's made better films than The Player, but fine. We want to include it. Like, the fact that Spike is not one of those five, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's outrageous. I mean, I, can I, can I just jump because, in real fast, though? I know that this was a very important film, but remember The Titans is Denzel Washington's best movie. Okay? I just need to get out oh, there with geez. that. <laughs> Let that be okay, known. Well, well, at least we can argue, yeah. <laughs> Peak Denzel is maybe an open to interpretation <laughs> for me and Cody. Jesus. But it's amazing. Wow. The scenes where he's in the prison and you know, he has to write up the dictionary, he challenges Christopher Plummer on whether or not Jesus was white. Um, mm-hmm. He's just a masterful orator. Like, I think, I guess to Cody's point, why he's so great, remember the Titans, is Denzel, you give him a speech, it's like raw meat to this guy. Like, he just captures the screen. He's so captivating. Even when he yeah. falls in love with sister uh, Angela Bassett's character, and it's like, you know, this guy doesn't even have time for women. Like, he's too busy trying to, you know, rally the troops here and trying to save the movement and trying to save black people. It's, it's a remarkable performance, and it's such a transformation. If you see Malcolm X newsreel footage and you watch Denzel, it's uncanny. Yeah. Which is, uh, which is, again, why maybe Ruthie Carter probably should have won for best costume design because it was on point. And, and Denzel is so good, not only with a monologue, but with back and forth uh, sequences with other actors. He's so like, quick, quick, yes. quick, quick. Like, it's so, so, so good. He is so good. Trip to Mecca, obviously very spiritual. It's stunningly shot. It's very moving. But my favorite sequence of the movie is A Change Is Gonna Come. Sam Cooke, one of the all-time beautiful songs. It's about the civil rights anthem. You know, it's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. That whole sequence, Malcolm knew that the assassination was coming, um, but there's still a real poignance to that sequence. I think it's a marvelous sequence. I really found that interesting because they used the exact same song. Well, not the exact same song because they used uh, Al Green sing that version in Ali. Yes, uh, Michael so, Mann, yeah. Yeah, and that was when, that scene, that was when he found out that Malcolm was assassinated. I found that really interesting, the, oh, yeah. the, the connection there. That, that, that was really good. Yeah, that is definitely a good connection. It's a powerful song. It was definitely a member of that kind of whole civil rights movement. It came like a civil rights anthem because Sam Cooke was criticized by some for mm-hmm. being a guy who was, you know, too interested in singing pop tunes. The final sequences are brilliant. Ozzie Davis reading the eulogy. You know, did you ever see yeah. him smile at you? Did you ever know Malcolm? Um, Nelson Mandela reading by any means necessary. I mean, I, like Spike is taking some big swings, but I think he's connecting more than any other director, especially when you could tell the subject matter was so important to him. And seeing the credits, the uh, end credits, uh, seeing all the pictures of everybody that helped support the movie, because as you know, he didn't have the funding from Warner Brothers. He had right. to ask for money from his friends. 
So yeah. seeing so the support. The yeah. budget was about $32, $35 million. He needed a few more million to get across the finish line. So I know we can't mention Bill Cosby, but Cosby did throw in a million. Quincy yeah. Jones helped out. Oprah Winfrey helped out. Like it was literally, he went to black entertainers with money and said, listen, can you help me? And they pushed him across the finish line. The film didn't make much money. I think it was about a $40 million budget. It made about $40 million, but I think it's, it's an extraordinary film. And I have a tiny quibble. The dance sequence is a little bit long, three-hour, 14-minute movie. I'd love to ask Spike. I'd say, listen, for an almost perfect movie, that dance sequence is like eight minutes. Like, what were you thinking there? But I think so maybe, maybe like an was, homage to one of those old musicals or something. I'm not sure. So that was, that was the scene where they played shotgun? Yeah. No, scene? no. Shotgun's at the end. Shotgun is before he gets killed. Early on, when, when uh, Malcolm and Spike are out kind of dancing and carousing, it's where he first meets the white woman. Oh. There's this whole oh, like, yes. sequence that I'm like, man, this is. I, I, it must have been like one of those movies, though, where like Spike was like, I'm making an homage to like a Busby Berkeley musical. I finally have some money. I'm going to do this. But it's a tiny quibble. I, I, I think yeah. for a three-hour and 14-minute movie, Roy, it actually moves along at a pretty good pace. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty quick for me. Uh, yeah, it was actually, you could actually sit through that and not realize, hey, it's actually like 8 o'clock. I saw this movie at 3 or 5 o'clock. Like, wow, that's amazing. So, yeah, you can actually sit down through it. You can actually learn some things and you can enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. Malcolm X, if you haven't seen it before, For Me Police, it's a classic. Roy Bellamy, uh, love the cameo appearance. Appreciate the time. Any closing thoughts you have for us here on Cinephile? Let's say Cinephile's better. Say it. I'm not going to say Cinephile's better. I'm going to say that both... Cinephile and Cinephobe are, I would say, uh, stepbrothers in the, in the situation. Uh, not the movie, but actual stepbrothers. Um, and they do keep each other afloat. You know, they keep each other up and uh, they should support each other, even if they take barbs against each other. Uh, that was just some dancing you did right there. Listen. Yeah, well, I was dancing better than that dancing scene. That <laughs> Roy is Switzerland, right down the middle. He's supporting all, whether it's me or me. Roy, you're the best. Thank you, man. appreciate you. you. Go Panthers. Thank you, Adnan. Thank you, Chris. (laughs) How about Cody trying to say, uh, remember the Titans? Oh, it's just a classic. What the hell is the matter with you, I got to get in. I got to be the everyman movie guy at one point in the podcast. I'm telling you. Everyman? The everyman. I'm telling you. There's people out there like me. I've never seen Malcolm X. I watched the Remember the Titans. That's it. Two Americas. Two Americas. (laughs) All right, we'll continue right now with a couple of reviews. So the first film that I came across is called The Immigrant. It happened to be on HBO, and it came out about a decade or so ago. James Gray is the director. He did a film called Little Odessa. I did Ad Astra, which Cody might have seen, but Brad Pitt came out a couple years ago. He's one of these directors, done a good job. And just because the cast, I said, let me just check it out. Marion Cotillard's in it. She won an Academy Award. Which, by the way, Ben Lyons said to me, I was more nervous talking to Chris Cody than I would be talking to Marion Cotillard. So... <laughs> Shout out to Ben Lines. If you didn't listen to him, Ben was, definitely gets the show. That was fun last week. He gets the show. Uh, Marion Cochard said, so is Joaquin Phoenix. Here's the story. Marion Cochard is an impoverished Polish woman who arrives at Ellis Island, soon separated by her ailing sister who's suffering from tuberculosis. Uh, they're there to see her aunt and uncle, obviously start a new life. Unfortunately, though, the sister gets removed. They put her in quarantine, which is a very popular term these days. <laughs> and now facing deportation back to Poland, she's rescued by Joaquin Phoenix. As soon as he shows up, you go, okay, this guy's bad news. A theater manager who appears to have a kind soul, although since it is Joaquin Phoenix, you know he's going to be deranged and he can't possibly be a good person. He brings her back to his place, feeds her, gives her a bed. She sleeps with a knife under it, by the way. So she kind of has an idea this guy's probably a creep. Some guy just picks me up from Ellis Island. He just, he's, just, he's just checking out immigrants. I'm like, okay, what could this be about? <laughs> she ends up taking a bath next door. We soon realize the theater manager because Joaquin Phoenix is nothing more than an enterprising pimp. 
That's right, a theater manager, but the theater is a big strip show. And he's like, in this corner, from Italy, la 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 gazza. And they come up, boom, 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 a little topless show, a bunch of drunk guys screaming away. This is 1920s New York, by the way. So you can clearly tell she's going to be playing Lady Liberty is the role he has earmarked for her. <laughs> now, he clearly wants to profit off of her selling her body, but also has a soft spot for Marion Cochard. You can tell this because the way he gazes upon her, he's protective of her. But she realizes she has to do this. She has no other option. She needs money, as he tells her. If she gets enough money, she can free her sister, who right now is in quarantine, and then go visit her aunt and uncle. So very grudgingly, she ends up becoming a whore. And this guy, at one point, there's a young man comes in. He's got some sort of reputable business leader with him. And he goes, hey, uh, my son wants to be with Lady Liberty. And Joaquin Phoenix is like, okay. He goes, he hasn't been with, uh, he goes, I understand. He goes, uh, we, there are some other young men, perhaps. He's like, no, 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 he, he wants to be with her. He just hasn't had any experience. And he goes up there, and you, just, you feel awful because she's, she's degrading herself for the money to try and rescue her sister. Now, Jeremy Renner shows up. I'm like, all right. He's this foolish, silly, but a kind-hearted character. He's this magician. Now, he's got no issue in goading his cousin, Joaquin Phoenix, because now he is also falling in love for Marion Cotillard's character. So we have a love triangle whose consequences threaten to be disastrous. I will say no further on the plot. But it's very restrained filmmaking. It reminded me, in some ways, of the film La Strada, the great Fellini film, and that you've got this obviously horrible person in Joaquin Phoenix who ends up having some redeemable qualities because he does have his heart in the right place. You have this sad sack female heroine who's being mistreated, just like Julieta Messina. You had Marion Cotillard. And then you've got the fool, Richard Basar in La Strada. Here in this case, it's Jeremy Renner. My contribution to this movie is Jeremy Renner learned how to spit fire for this role <laughs> as a magician. This is what I was wondering. I said, what's Cody going to bring? Because there's no yeah. way he's going to watch The Immigrant. I emailed you Thursday. I go, maybe he'll have a few days to check them out. Not that I'm expecting it. And then you texted today. Go, hey, what movies are we doing? I go, okay, there's no way he watched The Immigrant or Dr. Zhivago. I was checking my email last night. I'm like, what damn movies should I be watching? I watched Space Jam, so I just checked out for the rest of the movies. I'm like, I'm good. Dude, as long as you have one, and I think as long as you watch the new release, then we're good. And by the way, the Quick Change comments were great. The, the amount of tweets I got, the best film that we reviewed last week was Quick Change. Oh, so good. The amount good. of people right now are asking for Quick Change. They all want to see this movie. Mm -hmm. So anyways, that's uh, good that he learned to spit fire. It's got great <laughs> 1920s period detail. It effectively conveys the dirt and grime of that era. It's also immigration has evolved. And if some ways, I think it stayed the same. You know this in South Florida. There's a lot of strip clubs down there. I think a lot of these people are immigrants who come here. They have no other choice. All right, well. I have to sell my body a little bit, and it's a means to an end, and it, it's it's unfortunate, but that's the way that sex sells, unfortunately, for a lot of these immigrants. I, I've, I've heard that there's strip clubs down here. I don't know. I'm not really sure. You know, There's rumors Cody's, that they exist. I'm just not. Married man, okay. He's, not, he's, he's above that stuff, okay? Maybe ask his dad. Ask Greg back in the day before he met his mom. Baby. Uh, I did love the vivid final shot. You've got two major events happening. It's picture in picture. I won't spoil it, but it's about one journey which is ending and one journey is just beginning. James Gray, excellent director. I'm giving the immigrant three and a half Maple Leafs. We're going to get to Jay Glenny, our special guest, in just a second, but I do have to mention Dr. Zhivago. This movie, Adnan, is this as far back as we're going to go? Is this going to be... Cody, I, th <laughs> I, th I think I tried to watch this during the pandemic. I know I did because I watched Lawrence of Arabia, which was spectacular, which I should mention, our man John Skipper, our boss, I, I emailed him at some point during this process, and I mentioned I watched Lawrence of Arabia. He's like, Lawrence of Arabia is one of my all-time favorites. So, listen, I was like, all right. And by the way, it matched up the hype. Now, having been to Saudi Arabia, where I went for the DAZN fights back in December of 2019, now that I've actually been to Saudi Arabia, I could really appreciate Lawrence of Arabia. Epic feel. Now, Dr. Zhivago, same director. I remember texting Dan Stancic. He's like, good luck. I go, you've seen Dr. Zhivago? He's like, bro, it's going to be a rough one. And he was right. <laughs> and it's my long, are, long oh. movie. My parents are visiting, and my mom told me it's one of her favorite movies. She said it's one of the first movies she saw with my dad. The film came out in 65. They got married in 72. She says she saw it in 73. I don't think my dad remembers watching the movie because I asked him. He's like, uh. 
Three hours and 22 minutes. Ugh. And the director, once again, is David Lean. And his last name is an oxymoron. Because his films are epic. They're <laughs> bloated. But they're also sweeping. Uh, here's what I can say that the film is about. The Russian Revolution. It's dark. It's cold. It's complicated. It does star Omar Sharif, who I love. He's from Lawrence of Arabia as well. The great story there is when Peter O'Toole met him on the set. He goes, your name's Omar Sharif? He's like, yeah. He goes, no, it's not. He goes, what? He goes, you're way too good looking. And your name is Omar Sharif. What a perfect name. He goes, I'm going to call you Fred. So to the rest of his life, Peter O'Toole will call Omar Sharif Fred, which I think is a great story. Um, the story is this, though. Dr. Zhivago, which is the title character, is torn between his wife and his son, Sasha, and the love of his life, Julie Christie, who's playing his mistress. The story, let me tell you, Cody, it takes a while to get there. The first, I mean, this is one of those, if it was a VHS, like two tapes, the first tape, like, can we just speed through this thing? You know, people listen to me at times two and think I'm on amphetamines. This would be like watching Dr. Zhivago. Just put it on times two. Let's fast forward through this sucker. Listen, it's got some stunning wide shots. It shows the snow. It's all its beauty. Although, by the way, a lot of it was shot in northern Spain because it was published as a book. The Russian government, surprise, <laughs> was like, we're not a fan of this. It's not exactly pro-communism. The book was smuggled to Italy, which is where it was published. Later, the film was made by David Lean, but he shot it in northern Spain. Really had a big hot heat wave in northern Spain. Unfortunately, that caused issue with the weather. So a lot of the snow is like wax and it's all fake stuff. Regardless, it looks great. It's, uh, as I mentioned, based on that book. But you are trudging through the melodrama. I mean, this is much like the beat-up heroic character battling the elements. I felt like that watching this movie. I'm... I couldn't watch it in one sitting, Cody. Had to watch it in three different <laughs> oh. sittings. And at the end, I said to my mom, by the way, I'm giving it two Maple Leafs just for the look of it. I mean, the cinematography, the directing is incredible. There's one shot where you're in a train. You're coming out of a tunnel. It's a beautiful POV. But I said, Mom, the fact it took us three sittings to sit through this movie, doesn't that tell you this film could have sped up a little bit? She goes, I thought it was great. <laughs> she goes, great acting, beautiful film. I couldn't imagine Chris Cody sitting through this I'm movie. just, I'm falling asleep just looking at the poster. <laughs> and the this fact, would be, why would you oh, torture yeah. yourself with three sittings? You just, I know it's a long movie. You just got to torture yourself through one just so you don't have to like keep coming back. No, but dude, that first hour, I'm just like, is anything going to happen? Like, I didn't want to upset my mom. I'm spending time with my mom. It's one of her favorite movies. I'm like, is, is anything going to happen? Like, I don't want to be that guy on my phone, but I'm like, I just grabbed my phone at one point. I so recently saw an interview with Quentin Tarantino on Bill Maher, and he said that he was talking about the, like all the decades of, of movies and when the good decades were, the bad day. He said the 50s were terrible and yeah. that the 70s were great, but actually got it got good in the late 60s. This was 65, yeah. so this was a little – this was kind of in that – 50 to 65 range where the movies weren't really good, according to Quentin Tarantino. No, and listen, Tarantino's a genius, so I agree with everything he says. As a matter of fact, Mark Harris we're hoping to have on the podcast, he wrote a book called Pictures at a Revolution, and that's 1967, which was a watershed year in movies. You know what? That's what he said. It was 66. It's up until 67, and then it took off, and it got great. Right. Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, yeah. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. We're going to have Mark Harris hopefully on in August because Tarantino was on Mark Maron's podcast and he said, Mark Harris is my favorite film writer. That's a great book. So I finally read that book. So we're going to have that up. Nice. Back to Cody's point though. Dr. Zhivago, listen, <laughs> I, I get the fact, I'm, it's one of my mom's favorite movies, but I think for today's generation, 56 years later, tough sell. She, and it's certainly no Lawrence of Arabia. She needs to watch Remember the Titans. That's what your mom needs to watch. <laughs> mom, I got a great movie for you tonight. Chris Cody recommended it. It's Denzel firing up We the are the Titans. Mighty, mighty Titans. <laughs> Let's get fired up for the Titanic presence of Jake Lenny. Next. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. 
Granger for the ones who get it done. So I'm reading my Hollywood Reporter, and I see an excerpt. There's a new book about the making of Raging Bull. I race out to my nearest Barnes & Noble, and I got to get this Raging Bull book. Jake Lenny is the author. Jay, this has been a circuitous journey. I know you're going to be a fabulous guest, but we're violating a rule here today. Normally, I only like to interview authors after I've read their book. Sam Wasserman wrote a great book about Chinatown. I interviewed him a couple weeks ago. Mark Harris, you know him, great film author. He's got a new book about Mike Nichols. So I haven't read the book yet, but I can tell you this. Coattail Publications, I paid 80 pounds. I've got the book coming within the next week. I cannot wait to dive in. Thank you for your time today. Hey, pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, there's a big build-up. Yeah, we're very, very small coattails. My friend and I, Steve Will, can set it up. And it's um, so they're exclusive um, limited edition runs. They're, you can see they're large format books. And then we're, I've literally just finished a book on train spotting with Danny yes. and the team. That goes to print in the next month. And then continuing interviewing and writing uh, for Taxi Driver, which has been a thrill. I cannot wait. And so what I learned, at least gleaned from the excerpt, was that you have a terrific relationship with Bob, Robert De Niro. So how did your relationship come to be? Because clearly Bob trusted you and gave you lots of information, lots of intel for this book. I can only, I, I just saw snippets of it, Jay, but the pictures are glorious, and I'm sure the behind-the-scenes stories are marvelous. Yeah, it's, it was a really weird one, my friend. I mean, I know you've interviewed him. I listened to it again the other day. Yeah, it was a oh, great I appreciate interview. that. Yeah, it really was. I enjoyed it because what, what you would transfer was the energy and the um, enthusiasm that I've always had. Whenever I get a text, an email, whatever from him or phone call, you know, it's, you get told to call him Bob, as I know you did. And, uh, <laughs> but hell, he's still Robert De Niro, isn't he? You know, he's still the man. And um, I started working on The Deer Hunter purely because I'd interviewed, I was working on a project about Oscar winners and the three producers of The Deer Hunter, British Oscar winners. And then their stories were so full of rancor and bitterness and falling out and triumph. Your antennae immediately went up and thought, oh my word, there's a story bigger than the film here. So I just started writing away to cast and crew. Not one agent asked me what it was for, <laughs> where it was going, what it, you know, anything. So lesson out there for any agents listening in. <laughs> up. Um, and I got to such a stage, the story was growing so much and people were giving me artifacts and imagery young guys working on the film polaroids i remember one guy gave me and um joan corelli who's michael um Cimino's partner for many many years opened up his archive so i knew i had to ask bob so i wrote away and um the email come back bob would be up for this and i remember saying to the screen <laughs> really and um and it happened we got on really well on the phone we ended up meeting a couple of times in london when he was over um he opened up his archives i went over to texas for a week just a week of sheer heaven, as you can imagine, living in those archives and um, unearthing all gems. And then we met up Christmas mm, 2001, isn't it? Christmas 99. And um, he asked what was next, uh, evening meal, uh, evening meetup. And um, I said, I'd love to do a book on Raging Ball. And then I started sort of gently researching and organising things. And um, the pandemic hit. So I sent him an email. I was laying, I don't live my life on a sun lounger, but it was a very remarkably a sunny day in March in the UK. And I was lying on a sun lounger in the garden and works was drying up because I write on film. Cinemas were closing. And I sent him a message, Bob, I'm going to start now. And he came back and said, yeah. So I did. And then, yeah, we just resumed calls and phone calls and 
people verifying that I was okay with him and the story was growing in the uh, Winkler and um, Kathy Moriarty. Marty came on board, which was just a film school in itself. And then out of the blue, I had a call because I'd spoken to Joe's people about four times and had a flat nose. Joe doesn't do interviews. And out of the blue on a, on a Monday morning, I had a message from Bob, Jay, can you speak now? Yeah, sure. No matter how well you feel you're getting on, it's still a can you speak ASAP message from Robert De Niro and your heart plummets a little bit. And he said, I spoke to Joe last night and he's he's on board. He's a tough wow. cookie, but I know you can handle him. And we did. We got on really well. And he's, his stories, when you read the story, just brings it alive because he's he's a straight no chaser fella. You know, he tells exactly like it is. Yeah, Pesci just wants to smoke cigars and golf. He has no interest in even talking movies, even acting in movies. It took a real effort from Bob and Marty even for him to appear in The Irishman. So I can't believe you got Pesci. Yeah, oh. yeah, I know. Um, let's go back with the scripts because it's funny. When I'm looking back at it, Marduk Martin's script was a fairly straightforward, you know, sports biopic. And then Paul Schrader comes aboard, who I adore his work, and he – he puts in the element of the brother. He adds Pesci's character, which completely changes the movie because mm. now it's about Jake and his brother. And I've talked to Schrader about it. I interviewed him on Cinephile on this podcast. And he told me he had one scene where he's got, you know, LaMotta at the end there. He's like, tries to masturbate. And like, he's, he's upset at his hands. He goes, ah, oh, it's his hands. It's his pussy hands. And Marty's like, okay, that's not what we're going with here, but thanks. And instead, Marty and Bob end up taking the script. They go to some island. I think it's St. Martin, whatever it was. And they start going, yes. And they start going through the entire script. When you've looked at it now, Jay, I'm sure you've looked at Marduk Martin's script, Paul Schrader's script, and now Bob and Marty, the final version. I almost feel like they should be credited as screenwriters because their influence, you always know this with Scorsese films, there's a lot of ad-libbing and improvisation, but I feel like he and Bob ended up changing a lot of the story in a good way. Yeah, I asked the exact question. Um, we could have written the book together. Um, <laughs> I am, um, <laughs> and I did ask the exact same question, buddy. And, um, and Bob said, no, it just wouldn't have been right. You know, we were only working from the work that Mardik and Paul gave us, but we had to make it our own. It, it felt a little bit too impersonal for a story that Bob really, really wanted to tell. He'd seen Jake outside of the, the sort of a strip club club in New York way back, even before it was even mentioned that he was going to make a film about his life. And he, he spotted him, it's Jake LaMotta. And first thing he thought of was the way. There's an interesting story. And then he gets given his book and says, look, Bob, would you make it? So Bob was, had been living for a long while and they went to St. Martin, as you said, and sort of rewrote it and made it their own. And a young girl went with them, who's Brian De Palma's, it's a really a whole term nowadays, but sort of Girl Friday from way back but that was her term Gloria Norris and Bob had bumped into Brian in the village and he said look we're shooting to St Martin to rewrite this script and whatnot and Brian said why don't you take Gloria she's great anyhow they did and that's during our conversation Gloria mentioned a couple a couple of times about some photos she'd got and you wait till you see these photos man they're, they're what it was it was an expensive trip so marty's idea was because he'd never stepped foot on the beach why don't we take some pictures that make it look like we're living the vida loco out here and there's pictures of them in hawaiian hats and and <laughs> drinking pina coladas and they're beautiful pictures as soon as gloria took a picture of on her phone and sent them to me and instantly i knew i had to have them for the book because it brings that chapter of the book alive it really does Oh, I can't wait to dive in. I love the De Palma-De Niro connection because you always think of De Niro and Marty. But, of course, Greetings and Hi, Mom. Those are like two of the first films that De Niro did were with De Palma. Yeah. And 
when Schrader showed De Palma the taxi driver script, De Palma says, well, it's not right for me, but my buddy Marty would love this movie. He'd be great with this. So I, I always think De Palma is a really critical element in all their lives. Um, let's get into the boxing sequences. German expressionism, speeding up the camera, slowing it down, animal noises, mm. all the action inside the ropes. Uh, it's amazing. I remember the movie Shine. Scott Hicks, the director, said there's one scene where Jeffrey Rush is falling apart. And he said, this is my Raging Bull sequence. I think, Jay, if you asked any filmmaker today, they'd all say, those, it's 12 minutes of a two-hour and eight-minute movie. But those 12 minutes have informed every part of my life. Thelma Schoonmaker's editing, the shot composition, and Marty's not even a boxing fan. Like, how did he do this? How did he make these scenes sing like this? I think that was the, the probably the, what you said there was most pertinent. He's not a boxing fan. And sometimes I think it, t- it takes a person from the outside to see the inside. Yeah. And I think that's what Marty brought to it. You know, he bumped. He told me that he bumped into Norman Mailer, and um, he said Marty said such was my mind during this process. I, um, during this period, sorry, um, I said to Norman, you know, we're doing a book about uh, a film about Jake the Motto, but we're not going to not going anywhere near the boxing. Norman Mailer, went, what? You got to go near the boxing? He was a great fighter. No, 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 we're not interested in the boxing. And Marty, said, you know, you realise he had to do the boxing, and we bumped into Norman Mailer a few years afterwards. And he, he saw him leaving and he sort of zeroed into him across this bar. And he said, Norman, Norman, I've made Raging Ball, you know, and put it in the boxing scenes. And, and Norman said they were the worst bits of the film. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, they're the Godfather. I mean, Marlon was only on screen for 10 minutes or so in The right. Godfather. And it's the same with the boxing. They just, right. they seep into every pore of you when you watch them. Um, and Felmer said that, you know, the, the animal noises and the, from the great sound editor, whose name just escaped me now. Just as I was mentioning, um, yeah, he really brought that to them, and that editing was really, really key. But Marty opened up his archives, as I said, and he he storyboarded every scene, so you know every bit was was his, and it's it's just amazing. He's also said that um, to get round that masturbation scene, I asked Bob, and he said it just wasn't where we were going with it. It was a Paul Schrader scene to yes. me. It was just so evidently a Paul Schrader scene, and he said, and I got up. And I banged my head against the wall because I'd seen Jake do it. And Marty went, that's it. That's it. That's what we need to do. Yeah, and, and that's amazing because when he starts yelling, I'm not an animal. I'm yeah. not an animal. Like you can feel the passion of that. Yeah. I love the fact he shot it in black and white because Marty said he couldn't get the red quite right. He was worried about desaturation and colors. And obviously he's such a film lover. He was worried about the film purity of it. That's why the black and white, he couldn't get the red gloves right. How about mm. going back to Thalva Schoonmaker? There's one scene where somebody says, Cuddy Sark, to order a drink. And Marty mm. couldn't get the audio right. And at one point he said, I'm taking my name off the picture unless we can get this right. Tell that story. Yeah, well, that was Pete Savage. That was the co-author yeah. of, of Raging Bull. And Erwin um, um, uh, said that he's never had, he's had two rows with Bob and Marty. That, if that could constitute a row, as Marty said, I'll take my name off the screen. Oh, my name's not going on it if I can't carry on editing it. Because his head was just too much into the film. And Owen said, be that as it may, this film is leaving here at midnight tonight because it needs to be, the following week, it's opening. And the other the argument, the other argument I just brought up there was um, with Bob about the weight gain. He was concerned about his friend. And they were talking about a fat suit. And Bob just said, I couldn't do that. And that was the other row that, um, that Owen said. It was just basically just, one, because the director just will not let go. And secondly, I was concerned for my friend and, you know, the, what it was going to do to his body. Well, it's amazing because when LaMotta trained with De Niro, he said, like, he was a legitimately good boxer. He's like, if De Niro mm. had decided to be a boxer, he was like, 
I'm not saying he would have been a champion, but he was decent. He could hang in a few rounds because that's how yeah. good a shape he was in, and that's how seriously he took it. And you know one thing. Obviously, you've talked to Dino so many times now. One thing about this guy, man, Jay, when he's committed, he's obsessed with it. And I think yeah. that you needed to have – I don't think any other actor could do that, right? That's why it's one of the most immersive, most influential films of all time because of De Niro's commitment to the material. Yeah. He's such a self-affecting guy, though. He really is because I kept putting that to him as, and as enthusiastically as you just did to me. And – um well, you know, you know, Jake said that, but that was just Jake being Jake. He said that I knocked out a, a, a Golden Glove winner. And he said and he wasn't a Golden Glove with the guy. He was a little bit um, a, a simple guy who used to mop the floor of the gym. And that's so much Bob, because any other actor would take that and run with it, wouldn't they? They'd want to be known as that guy that yeah. was, could have been a Golden Glove knocker outer. And, um, but Bob's right. just not that way at all. But what I found in particular with this book, um, there's this forensic nature. We spent, it was six seconds shy of two and a half hours on the one Zoom call going over every piece of the book. Wow. Who said that? Is that what they said? Not once was he censoring me, but he just wanted to make sure that the story was how everybody perceived it. It was amazing, it was. Yeah, one story he's told, which is great, it's one of the studio heads. So why would you want to make a movie about this guy? This guy's a cockroach. And mm. De Niro was so offended by that. Like, no, he's not. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. that's where the film gets you, is that if you just sold this to somebody, if I pitched you this, I'm like, Jay, I got this movie. It's uh, about an abusive guy. He's self-loathing, miserable bastard, treats his brother like shit. Uh, his girlfriend's like underage. Like, it's just a horrible person. You want to get a film about this? Oh, yeah. Two-hour, ten-minute movie. It's going to be one of the greatest films of all time. Like, for, like, De Niro and Marty understood that there's some humanity within this guy. Like, the ending, I mean, Spielberg's this. Spielberg goes, the ending is great because he's at some level of acceptance. And you know one thing about Marty and Bob's movies, it's always a level of redemption. He is at peace with the fact he's a fat failure, even though he squandered his entire life. They yeah. have this element of grace. Mm. I, I, I'm always amazed by the ending because there's so many levels it works on. De Niro's an actor playing a boxer, reciting a speech by Marlon Brando, an actor who was playing a boxer and on the waterfront. And mm. one of Scorsese's heroes is Ilya Kazan. Like, that mm. works on so many different levels, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that scene just never leaves you, does it, at the end? And that's Marty coming in as well, asking him how long he's yeah, got. Yeah, right, right. And, you know, just, it's just a, that, that intensity that Bob has. Joe took exception to that, actually. Because um, all, all the talk over the years has been that Bob put on the weight and that's why he won the Oscar. And I don't want to curse on this podcast. Go ahead. No, and did with Joe. No, he didn't win a fucking weight and put the weight on the win a fucking Oscar. Bob done it because he's fucking committed and he's a great actor. Fuck right. the Oscars. That's not why he done it. And, and, you know, he, and that would have been Bob. He had no thought given to winning an Oscar or winning the plaudits thereafter. He just knew that he had to do that to get to where he needed to be with that character. And it's just... Um, it's just amazing. And how, how say he, in between all this gestation period, he made the deer hunter, you know, he flew away, made that. And, and he met, he, he went to Owen just on the eve of flying out to Thailand to said, look, I'm going, but keep with raging ball. And Owen said, the only, well, you, you just alluded to it there, a black and white film, who the hell would make that two hours about essentially a cockroach. And um, <laughs> they, they made it because of no other reason because of Rocky. They wanted the sequel to Rocky 2, and that was the only reason United Artists kept with it. 
Yeah, it's amazing that Irwin, by the way, you're right, as a producer, is responsible for Rocky, this fabled mm. underdog story, and mm. he's raging bull. It's the, it's the opposite of the American yeah. dream. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. One of the things that's gets underrated about Raging Bull, Jay, is how funny it is. Yes. That scene where he talks about the steak, you, you overcook it, it defeats its own purpose, which is an ad lib by De Niro. It's such a great, I think of that line all the time. Hey, don't overcook it. If you overcook it, it defeats its own purpose. Um, the, the, the whole scene where he's accusing him of sleeping with his wife, it's actually brilliant dialogue. And, and mm. even, even when he gets Pesci on the phone and he goes, you listen, is this you? Salvi, is that you? And he goes, your, your mother sucks big fucking elephant dicks. Mm. You got that? Like, there is such humor in this movie, which yeah. I don't think people realize unless you really watch it properly. No, no. And, and Joe said it. So when I rang up Bob, uh, just to get Bob's side of it as well, and then we went back to Marty with Joe's story, and out of the blue, he said that, um, did you fuck our mother? And that literally was out of the blue. And that was the reaction that Joe wasn't given in that scene. So Marty and Bob had a confab, but what can we do? And they come up with that. And they literally just flew it in there. Did, did you fuck our mother? And that, that, you see that venom on Joe's face. How can you ask me that? And um, and he said, and Joe said that used to, just, that was what I was learning, that Bob would take me places. And you had to be on your toes. He said, but, you know, I, I was from the streets. I could spar with the best of them. And I went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Bob, and that's what I wanted to do. That's Because he effectively had retired. He'd made one film, no one's seen. You know, I, I had, but no one had seen at the time. And... Um, yeah. And effectively retired, running a pizzeria restaurant. I mean, it's just, and to to go back to your original um, thought, who would make a film, a black and white film about you know Jake LaMotta, an unsavory character? Who would make a film about an unsavory character in black and white with one leading guy? No one's heard of Joe Pesci. No, Kathy Moriarty it was her debut. It's just unfathomable, isn't it? Yeah. And what I really wanted to do when I sat when I sat down and researched a book, I had a so many keys and when you're telling a story like this you know when you when brian mentioned at the back of the book just to um fast forward there because you you alluded to it about how many people was influenced I, I thought i just wanted to show bob and marty how many people love their film so I, and complete vanity for me i wanted to speak to these guys so i wrote away to the michael mann francis ford coppola brian de palma david o russell um and that all said yes yeah, 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 yeah. So we, now I'm seeing myself on Zoom calls with these, oh man, these are icons. And all of them absolutely adored and loved, loved the film. And that, that to me, just, just antips what, the, what this film is about. You know, you, yeah. the reason you and I are talking and you're so passionate about it is it, it just lives on. It's just, just remarkable. Yeah, Sight and Sound has it in their top 10 all time. AFI had it, I think, number four on their greatest mm. films of all time. Like, it's indisputable how great the film is. Mm. Kathy Moriarty, too. I mean, talk about a gutsy performance. I mean, like mm. you said, she comes out of nowhere, this ingenue, the abuse she takes at the hands of Jake. I think it's important that she is a newcomer because you're watching the film. You're not thinking about any previous work she's done. She seems like this really fresh face in Vicky. Do you think she actually did sleep with Joe Pesci's character, or is she just saying that because she knows that no matter what, Jake is going to think it. So she just wants him off her back, says, yeah, okay, I, you know, I, yeah. I did it to I all. asked Kathy, and she said no, and I asked Joe, and she said no. Okay. Uh, Bob was adamant that they had. Bob felt that they, they did. And, when, and then when I put that to them, they said, no, 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 that's just Bob. There's no, 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 never in a million years. She was absolutely, the reason she stayed around was because she, she was so infatuated by Jake. Right. So in her view, and she, Kathy was very upset. She told me that they, they would never allow her to meet the real Vicky. Um, because what, and what could, could she'd learned so much during this, um, this huge learning training period with Bob before camera even turned. 
and she knew of Bob's research. She, oh, that's where I'm going to, going to go. And Marty said, no, 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 no. What you've got to understand is you're not playing Vicky LaMotta. You're playing Jake's version of Vicky LaMotta. Mm. For what, how he perceives you. That's who you're playing. And she said, it, just a light bulb came on when he said that. Because it is, he's got this huge, he wanted to own Vicky and she, she was you know, a teen bride for Lord. So she was pregnant teen bride. I mean, it's just, it's just um, as you said, it just, Mac, it's just unbelievable the film was even made, isn't it? The more you talk about it, the more you investigate it. I mean, how the hell? And not only was it made, but you actually championed Bob or Jake, don't you, in the film? That's oh, yeah. Bob's quality. Yeah, you find the humanity within this guy and you're rooting for him, despite the fact there's no reason to be rooting for this guy whatsoever. And in a film with incredible dialogue, you know, give me a stage with this bull here can rage and though I can fight, I'd much rather recite. That's entertainment. I actually think the best line probably is just, you never got me down, Ray. Like that, yeah. that, like what, what, that actually typifies his entire life. That it's yeah. his entire life. All the beatings that I've administered, all the beatings I've taken, you never got me down, Ray. Yeah. You never got yeah. me down. It's, it's beautifully yeah. done. No, there's a, sorry, just a, uh, that's so true because uh, the, um, I interviewed John Tuturio for it and uh, a couple of people, I remember a couple of chums, oh, what, he's a fan, is he? I said, no, John's in it. John's in the film. <laughs> I had to, it's his first ever time on screen and um, he's always, he's been a long standing favourite of mine and him and his buddy Mike Badaluco yes. um, were in a stage play and Bobby and Bob got wind of it the stage play had quite a few Italian Americans in it so went down to see them this play and I won't spoil the story too much but they end up auditioning and they ended up wanting to do an audition together but their audition was separate they were both there on the same day but they had separate auditions and but they wanted to do this scene together so Mike was a, um, a stagehand on a Woody Adam film following his dad into the industry as well as a, a, a would-be actor training actor and so he got a prop gun, put it into a bag, wrapped it into a towel. And he said, if they say no, we'll just take them hostage. And John's crying with laughter when he's saying it. He said, Joe, I want it written. I want it written in your book. But I said no. I knew that it wasn't a good idea. But they, what, they were foreshadowing um, Rupert Pumpkin in King of Comedy. <laughs> I mean, that's what they do. That's what Bob does, isn't he, in King of Comedy? They were going to take Marty and Bob hostage if right. they didn't get them into it. The last thing Mike said to John as he went into the, to the audition he said, look, I'm going to ask if they don't bring the bag in with the gun. And he said, and I kicked it under the seat. That never came in the audition. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's been a blast talking to Jay Glennie, author of The Making of Raging Bull. I cannot wait. You're working on Taxi Driver now. You're going to talk to Marty soon. I, it's got, I think, I mean, there's so much we could do about Taxi Driver. We do an hour on this too. But it's got the greatest tagline ever to a movie. On every corner, on every street in this city, there's a yeah. nobody who dreams of being a somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. about loneliness. It's about urban alienation. Again, another film that you go, why would you make a movie about this? Because all yeah. of us can relate to that film because all of us have felt like Travis Bickle at one time or another. Well, hopefully only parts of you have felt like Travis <laughs> <laughs> Not all of it, surely. <laughs> I, I didn't go to a gun sales, but I could probably suggest you. I didn't go to that level. <laughs> I'm looking at your hair, seeing if you put it in a mohawk. <laughs> um, yeah, how, how about, it, my favorite scene in Taxi Driver... It's the one that no one says. It's when he's on the phone. It's actually Scorsese's favorite shot. That final yeah. shot when Bob's on the phone mm. trying to, hey, did you get the flowers I got, Betsy? Yeah, and the camera yeah. tracks yeah, the right yeah, to an empty yeah. hallway because we mm. can't stand the pain of this guy being rejected. I think it's yeah. a gorgeous shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, can't, I mean, I'm deep into the interviews at the moment. And not what you should do, you should be professional and transcribe the interviews. But I'm not professional at all. <laughs> um, I transcribe bits of it and I could start piecing the story together. And the stories grown to such a huge length already and I'm only 
10 plus interviews in. Um, the great guy who's been a huge help for me is Michael Phillips, the producer. Just oh, yeah. quickly. I mean, he, he was working in the money market. Julia Phillips was his wife. She'd met a young actor called Tony Bill. Tony Bill visited them in New York and said, look, there's all these guys coming at UCLA and they can't get an interview with any director or studios. Why don't we hang our shingle out and we set up a little film production company. You stay in New York and I'll go out to LA. First guy through the door was this young guy, pitched him this story verbally because he hadn't written it. And he said, no, no, stop, stop, stop. I want to record it and send it to my partners in New York. So this young guy thought, hell, these guys are really big. They've got offices in New York. <laughs> he pitched them this story. They loved it. And they said, look, can you write? And he said, yes, this is my um, UCS, UCLA thesis. Gave it to him. And it was a film called Steel Yard Blues. They optioned it for four months. And Michael was laughed. And he said, yeah, no, you can take four months to get a phone call back. We optioned it for four months. And we paid him to write the screenplay that he pitched. They um, 3500 they paid for this kitten caboodle. Within two months, this Steel Yard Blues had attached um, Donald Sutherland and Jane Fonda, and it was a go between two studios pitching for it. Within two months of them pitching this, that bombed. It took a year to sort of to get together. In that meantime, he'd rented a house next to Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma gave him the taxi driver, and Michael said, I just, wow, optioned that. In between, they couldn't get anything off the ground. In between time, Michael's film that this young guy had pitched was The Sting with Robert Redford and Paul oh Newman. His second film won in the Best Picture. <laughs> best Oscar. Picture, right. Yeah. Then, then they still couldn't get Taxi Driver off the ground. It slowly come together. I won't spoil the story because I want some people to buy the book. But yeah. the fourth film that had been pitched to him, because Paul Schrader had done a rewrite on it, was Close Encounters. That was his first four films. And when a guy's telling you that and he's, he's going like, I mean, he was like, they couldn't believe how easy this movie industry was. He said, and after that, I couldn't get a film off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's amazing because they all thought no one would ever see the movie. Schrader, De Niro, and Marty thought we're making this movie for ourselves. And all of a sudden, when it starts showing in New York, the lines are down the block. They, we, we've got a hit. This movie's actually going to make money. It's shocking. Yeah. Um, Jay Glenn, we could do this all day. I, I yeah, uh, admire sure, your man. work. I cannot wait to get the book. Once I get the book, I'm going to send you more emails. But uh, I thank you so much <laughs> for the time. When is the tax year book coming out? Next year? Uh, with a fair wind, I'm hoping Christmas. Okay. That's why I've got white hair. <laughs> We're going to have you back on Christmas. This was awesome. Thanks so much, Jay. Thanks so much, man. What a delightful guy. I mean, the, the accent always helps. But I have to admit, Adnan, after listening to that and hearing you talk about it in recent weeks, I'm making a promise to you. I'm going to watch Raging Bull this weekend. Wow. Next Hang week, on a sec. No, by no, the no, next no. episode, by next week when we record, I will have watched and will have my review for Raging Bull. I promise to you, my man. Okay, listen. Th this is not a prerequisite for the podcast, to be clear. But I want to. I'm genuinely to... interested. I mean, I've always heard that that was a great movie. It's in your top ten. Mr. Glennie was just glowing about it, wrote that book about it. I am Joe going, Tess. Joe Tess. I'm going to watch it. I'm doing it. I'm, 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 okay. And I'm excited okay. about it, too. Like, I think it's going to be really good. This is a great tease for next week. Raging Bull, the Chris Cody review. Yes. Plus. And the review will just, and the review will just probably be even like, good movie. You guys were right. <laughs> Pretty violent. Bad guy, huh? I'm like, yeah, not a great dude. You've, you're hyping up these boxing scenes, though. Sometimes expectations, you know, my expectations are really high. So, you know, we'll see. Dude, you're going to love these boxing scenes. Uh, I cannot wait for them. I hope you live text me as you're watching the movie. I will. I, that's actually what I'm hoping for this weekend. <laughs> Uh, next, we're going to talk about Stillwater, which is going to be one of the best films of the year. It stars Matt Damon, Tom McCarthy's a writer-director, and a special guest from the Levitard family. It's in honor of 
well, let's just say a special day coming up. So mm. that special guest is coming up, and we're going to have Mark Harris in the weeks ahead. Thanks once again to Jay Glennie. Thanks to Dan Levitro. Thanks to Ben Lyons. I've had some great guests on. Sam Wasson, unbelievable hair. And I can't wait to read this book, The Making of Raging Bull by Jay Glennie. Until then, we'll see you at the movies.